You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In a major expansion of gun rights after a series of mass shootings, the Supreme Court ruled for the first time that the Second Amendment gives Americans the right to carry handguns in public. A landmark ruling striking down a century-old New York law that required people to show a special need to carry a concealed handgun. As in the abortion decision, the court was divided six to three down ideological lines with the conservative justices in the majority and the liberal justices in the minority. New York Governor Kathy Hochul called the decision, which looks to the history of the 17 and 1800s, reckless and reprehensible. This is not a new law. This has been the law in the state of New York since the early 1900s. That is what's so appalling that that is not far back enough in history for them. New York City Mayor Eric Adams warned about violence in the streets. We will not allow our city to live in fear that everyone around us is armed and that any altercation could evolve into a shootout. Joining me is Second Amendment law expert Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA Law School. Adam, like the abortion decision, we were expecting this decision. Well, I think the court's ruling is even broader than many people expected, that the court not only strikes down New York's May issue permitting, but articulates a new test for all Second Amendment challenges that will be used to call into question a wide variety of gun laws, including some key provisions of the Senate gun bill. Justice Thomas, who wrote the majority opinion, said, quote, only if a firearm regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition, may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. So what's the framework for judges? What did the founders think? I think what the court suggests is that future courts must look to historical patterns of gun regulation. And only those gun regulations that have historical antecedents in the 17 and 1800s are constitutionally permissible. 
This really calls into question a wide variety of gun laws. For instance, red flag laws have no precedence in the 17 and 1800s. We didn't have any such thing as a red flag law. Also, this opinion calls into question restrictions on domestic violence misdemeanors being prohibited from possessing firearms, another subject of the Senate gun bill. Of course, in the 17 and 1800s, there wasn't such a thing as a domestic violence misdemeanor, much less a prohibition on those people possessing firearms. So I think this opinion, by focusing on history and tradition, saddles lawmakers and prevents them from attempting innovative, novel approaches to solving the public safety problem of guns. New York's governor pointed out that this is a century-old law and asked why that wasn't old enough for the Supreme Court. Well, the court says we're going to look to history and tradition, but really picks and chooses which history matters. The court dismisses old English common law as being too old and too ancient to tell us much about the Second Amendment. The court also dismisses any laws that were adopted after the late 1800s, saying that those laws are too young and can't reflect the original understanding of the Second Amendment. And when the court finds laws in the special period of the 17 and 1800s that restricted concealed carry, the court says that those laws were just outliers and shouldn't be taken to be the general attitude about guns and gun regulation. Indeed, the court says that shall issue permitting regimes are constitutionally permissible, but we didn't have shall issue permitting regimes at all in the 17 and 1800s. So the court says, let's do history and tradition but really picks and chooses the history that it wants and rejects the history that is inconvenient. In a concurring opinion, which the Chief Justice joined in, Justice Brett Kavanaugh said the ruling doesn't bar states from imposing licensing requirements for carrying handguns for self-defense, such as fingerprinting, background checks, mental health records checks, and training in firearms handling and in laws regarding the use of force. Do you think that all the justices in the majority agree with that? Well, perhaps not, but I don't think there's much in Kavanaugh's concurrence that changes the majority opinion. The majority also says that you can have shall issue permitting in a footnote. And the court also says that looking to history and tradition does not completely disable government from regulating guns. It just requires them to use historical patterns of regulating guns today. So I think that Kavanaugh's concurrence might suggest that he and the chief justice are less likely to go along with some of the broader implications of this ruling. But nonetheless, they adopt similarly that same history and tradition approach to analyzing gun issues, which really poses a big problem for the gun safety agenda going forward. The governor warned New Yorkers not to misinterpret the ruling and said that gun owners are not automatically a concealed carry permit owner. And she's going to call a special session to get the legislature to pass something. Do you have any idea what that would look like? I imagine that New York will pass a concealed carry law that is nonetheless difficult to satisfy. States often require over a thousand hours of training to do things like apply pesticides or to apply chemicals to someone's hair as a cosmetologist. I imagine New York will probably adopt onerous requirements on obtaining a concealed carry permit and will also provide guidance for localities to broadly define sensitive places where guns cannot be carried. 
did Justice Thomas provide guidance for what constitutes a sensitive area? No, not really. The court says that the government can restrict guns from sensitive places, but doesn't provide a lot of guidance as to what counts as a sensitive place. The court points to the fact that in the 1800s, there were a few examples of sensitive places regulations, such as restrictions on guns in legislative assemblies, in courthouses, and in polling places. And the court says that similar kinds of sensitive places can be barred today. But the court does not make clear what about those earlier places that were deemed sensitive that can be carried forward. So we're just not sure. Is it that a large people, number of people gather there? Is it that there's government functions going on? Uh, is it um, uh, that uh, government's already providing some security in those spaces? These questions really remain to be seen, and I think we're going to see a lot of litigation in the coming years over what counts as a sensitive place where guns can be prohibited. Eight states, I believe it is, have the most stringent May issue laws, like New York. Does this opinion mean that all those laws are unconstitutional and have to be rewritten and passed into law again? Almost certainly so. Uh, this opinion is strictly limited to New York's concealed carry regime. But there's several other states like California and Massachusetts and Connecticut that have very similar laws. Those laws, of course, are going to be challenged now. And uh, based on the strength of this ruling, are almost certain to be declared unconstitutional. The majority opinion feels like, you know, the worst nightmare of people who don't believe in textualism, the way Justice Thomas wrote this opinion. What's your take on, you know, the textualist taking over the court? Well, I think the real issue is the historicists who look to history and tradition as guiding constitutional stars. And uh, I think that there are principled ways to do a history and tradition analysis, but this opinion really struggles with it. Um, the court dismisses some laws as being too old, other laws as being too young, other laws as being um, too much out, too much like outliers uh, to reflect anything. Uh, and as a result, anyone who wants to criticize a history-based approach to constitutional law can use this opinion as a perfect example of why history and tradition does not provide the kind of restraints on judges that textualists often suggest. The dissent, written by Justice Breyer, joined by Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, begins with a long discussion of rising gun violence. And Justice Breyer says, I believe the Second Amendment allows states to take account of the serious problems posed by gun violence that I have just described. Do you agree with, with his interpretation that there's room there? Well, I think that the room available for lawmakers to respond to gun violence has been significantly limited by this opinion today. Um, sure, lawmakers can do other things that don't re restrict guns, such as community intervention programs like Operation Ceasefire and funding to harden schools or provide more access to mental health uh, treatment. Um, but I think when it comes to regulating guns themselves, this opinion really takes a lot off the table. The court was reluctant to take up Second Amendment cases for many years. Did that whole calculus change with the addition of Amy Coney Barrett to the bench? Yes, I think that's fair to say that the Trump appointees to the Supreme Court have transformed the court and transformed the court's approach to the Second Amendment. 
There have been many cases, including cases on concealed carry restrictions, brought to the Supreme Court over the last 14 years, and the court consistently turned those cases aside. But once Barrett joined the court, those cases came before the court quickly, and the court quickly ruled that concealed carry restrictions are unconstitutional. So I do think that the appointment of those three justices to the Supreme Court will have a profound effect on constitutional law generally, and on the Second Amendment in particular. How does this decision affect gun control laws in the future? Well, I think that the room available for lawmakers to respond to gun violence has been significantly limited by this opinion. Sure, lawmakers can do other things that don't restrict guns, such as community intervention programs like Operation Ceasefire and funding to harden schools or provide more access to mental health treatment. But I think when it comes to regulating guns themselves, this opinion really takes a lot off the table. Thank you so much, Adam. That's Professor Adam Winkler of UCLA Law School. Coming up next, we're going to continue our discussion of this landmark Second Amendment case and look at some of the repercussions for gun control laws. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. New York's Democratic leaders say they're determined to preserve as many restrictions on carrying a handgun in public as possible after the Supreme Court struck down the state's law that required people to show a special need to get a permit to carry a concealed handgun. New York Governor Kathy Hochul vowed to call the legislature back for a special session to pass new gun rules. We are not powerless in this situation. We're not going to cede our rights that easily, despite the best efforts of the politicized Supreme Court of the United States of America. 
My guest is Joseph Bloker, a professor at Duke Law School and co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Was the majority opinion here basically an unqualified license to carry a handgun in public in this country? It's something less than an unqualified license. And in fact, the majority opinion and a really important concurring opinion by Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts emphasize that even after this opinion, states, localities, federal government all still have legal tools to restrict guns, including the carrying of guns in public places. But what the court did do was strike down New York's regime for issuing permits to conceal carry handguns, and it adopted a brand new way of evaluating the constitutionality of gun laws going forward. And so I think we really are going to see a major sea change in the way that Second Amendment cases get litigated. Tell us about the framework the court laid out for judges to determine whether a restriction violates the Second Amendment. I think the first notable thing is what the court rejected. So Justice Thomas, writing for a six-justice majority, said that we don't evaluate the constitutionality of gun laws based on whether they protect important interests, like, for example, whether those laws save lives, protect people from gun threats, and so on. Instead, we look to whether those laws are consistent with history and tradition. And that can be a tricky thing because a lot of the gun laws that we have on the books today, of course, were passed in response to threats that, at least in their current form, the framers couldn't have imagined, right? Things like guns on airplanes, guns being possessed by, you know, people convicted of domestic violence crimes, which weren't even prosecuted as crimes in the late 1700s. That opens up the door to a whole lot of analogical reasoning, trying to figure out, like, whether a restriction on guns in, say, Times Square on New Year's Eve is the same as the 1328 English law that basically prohibited guns fairs and markets. That's how courts are going to be evaluating gun laws going forward. And it's a totally different set of evidence, right? It's a lot of citations to historical materials instead of citations to, for example, contemporary empirical evidence about whether and how particular laws work. Let's say there's a law banning AK-47s. How does a judge determine if that comports with history? How do they even make that assessment? So this is where I think the majority opinion kind of ducks on what's really the hardest question, which is, well, how do you do this kind of analogical reasoning across centuries? And given the massive changes in technology, firearms during that time, Justice Breyer, in his dissenting opinion, really pushes the majority on this. Like, what does it mean to decide that a contemporary gun law, say, restricting high-capacity magazines, is relevantly similar to a gun law that existed in the you know, late 1700s when the kinds of magazines we have today just didn't exist? And the majority doesn't give a whole lot of guidance. You know, they say, well, you can look to how and why a person's ability to carry a gun is being restricted. But that seems to me to kind of just be the same thing as asking the type of means and ends scrutiny that is, you know, why is this law passed in the first place and how is it working that the old framework asked, the framework that the court rejects. is just kind of laundering it through a historical analysis. And frankly, I think that's going to open the door to a lot of challenges, even to laws that so far have been upheld. So it's not only that this law was struck down, but that a lot of other laws whose constitutionality we've taken for granted are going to be challenged again. New York's governor, Kathy Hochul, said she's going to call a special session and they're going to change the permitting process. We're going to create a higher threshold for those who want to receive a concealed carry permit. We're going to require specific firearms training. So it sounds like it's still going to be tough to get a permit for concealed carry in New York. 
It'll be a different set of requirements that one has to satisfy in order to get a permit to carry a gun in public. Current regime is you had to convince a licensing authority that you had a sufficiently good cause, usually meaning like a heightened need for self-defense, not necessarily that you're proficient or that you don't present a risk to others or whatever. And what the court struck down was that kind of discretionary licensing system. Now, New York's not the only state that has laws like that depending on how you count it, another six to eight states, including California, have similar laws. I think what we're going to see, and what I think the governor's comments suggest, is a move by states that have these discretionary regimes, what are often called may-issue regimes, to kind of recast their laws as what are called shall-issue. And in those regimes, which the Supreme Court specifically said are perfectly constitutional, the criterion for getting a permit tend to be more objective. Now, there's still criterion in some of those states that you can be denied a permit if you're shown to be a risk to others, for example, or if you are shown not to have good moral character. So there's still some discretion in those regimes. But I think what we're going to see is some states trying to move out from the may-issue category into the shall-issue category. And there's some very in what the shall issue regimes actually do and don't permit. So in those eight states or so, are there laws now unconstitutional and they have to immediately go into session and draft new laws? Or can those laws stay on the books until they're challenged? I suspect that lawmakers in all those states have been bracing for the kind of decision that we got that is it's been widely expected that New York's law and its current form would be struck down. Some states might try to argue that their regimes, although they are technically may issue regimes or good cause regimes, actually function differently than New York's. Maybe they're more forgiving or maybe they spell out what counts as good cause a little more specifically than New York does. So they might try to distinguish themselves. But I do think we're going to see just broadly a change from what's known as good cause or probable cause into the more sort of shall issue category. I also think we're going to see in New York and elsewhere more of an emphasis on locational restrictions. That is to say, well, if we can't put these sort of front end restrictions on who can carry a gun in public, then we're going to pay more attention to the places where people are carrying guns in public. And so maybe designating more schools and government buildings and polling places, legislative assemblies as what are called under Second Amendment doctrine, sensitive places where guns can be prohibited. So the mayor said we're not going to allow New York to become the Wild West. And he talked about expanding the list of sensitive locations. Justice Thomas said, you know, you can't have all of Manhattan. Could you have, for example, the subways? I mean, these are really all the questions that are going to end up being litigated. And, you know, unfortunately, the court doesn't give us a whole lot of guidance on what makes one place sensitive or not, or what kinds of places count as sensitive or not. So something like subway, mass transit, generally, um, I think the argument would be strong. These are places where, you know, risk is heightened, where people are packed together, you know, stray shots are more likely to hit other people. On the other side, uh, gun rights advocates will say, those are dangerous places. That's precisely why we need guns. And, you know, how a court resolves that, you know, I think we're going to have to sort of wait and see. I would suspect that schools, government buildings, probably mass transit, other places will be found to be sensitive places in which guns can be prohibited. But the basis for that is still a little bit obscure. Justice Thomas's decision, is it all based on a textual interpretation of the Second Amendment? I would say it is based on text and history. I mean, the text of the amendment is pretty short, 27 words. It doesn't say anything directly about whether you can require a person to show good cause before carrying a gun in public. Gun rights advocates focus a lot on the word bear. They say, well, look, this is just about bearing guns. 
the previous decisions were about keeping guns in your home. Now we're talking about bearing that it was carrying them in public. And maybe the text can get you some part of the way there, but it doesn't necessarily say that that right to bear is free from all kinds of restrictions. And actually, the majority of Justice Thomas's opinion is dedicated to distinguishing various forms of historical regulation, which he says are not the same as New York. Because there are, if you look back across the centuries, many, many, many examples of restrictions of guns in public places, which New York and Amiki supporting them said, look, we're just trying to do the same thing that people have done historically and traditionally, and this law should be upheld on that basis. In his dissent, Justice Breyer says the Second Amendment allows states to take into account the serious problems caused by gun violence. Certainly, constitutional doctrine can take into account social harms and the government's longstanding authority to protect public safety. We see that not just in Second Amendment doctrine, but in other areas of doctrine as well. But the tricky thing is just, you know, how do the rules account for that? And up until now, up until this opinion came down, the way that courts were evaluating the constitutionality of gun laws did incorporate consideration of, well, what is the government trying to do here? Usually trying to save lives, trying to prevent people from being harmed by guns, physically or otherwise. And then, well, how well is the law doing that job? That's been the sort of traditional inquiry from the District of Columbia versus Heller decision in 2008 up until now. That's the approach that has predominated in the federal courts of appeals. What happened was that the majority came in and said what the federal courts of appeals have decided to do is just wrong. Even though the federal courts of appeal have gotten there unanimously, that's not the way that this should be done. Instead, we're just going to look to history for our lesson. Now, history, of course, has plenty of examples of governments regulating guns to keep people safe, uh, preserve the public peace. But again, this is just where it gets really tricky to know going forward what analogies judges are going to accept. Like, is it enough that you know, medieval English law allowed you to restrict weapons in fairs and markets. Does that support a restriction on, let's say, guns on school grounds or in Times Square on New Year's Eve? That's where all the action is going to happen. Thanks for being on the show, Joseph. That's Professor Joseph Bloker of Duke Law School, co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. A note, Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent of Bloomberg Radio, is a donor to groups that support gun control, including Every Town for Gun Safety. The group filed a brief at the Supreme Court supporting the New York law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.